Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.15, Smashing Idols. In the towns and villages surrounding Guangzhou, such as Hong Shiquan's home village of Guanlubu, the world was changing. Bandits roved the countryside, robbing travelers who lacked armed escort or didn't know the proper secret society sign. There were fewer honest travelers to rob as well. Traffic south from the May Pass had plummeted following the Treaty of Nanjing that ended the Opium War. The year of 1843 started off poorly for Hong Shiquan. He sat for the imperial exams in the spring, but failed again for the fourth time. He'd heard from a friend that two years earlier, the exam students had rioted and nearly pulled the magistrate out of his litter as he fled the scene. Did these men deserve his respect anymore? Did he still want to join their ranks at all? After the failed exam, Hong took a job teaching at a school in the village of Waterlily, about 10 miles from where he was born. The Lee family, his stepmother's clan, had given him the job so he could teach their sons, perhaps, to pass the exams themselves. One day, a friend and member of the Lee family, Li Jingfang, noticed an odd book on Hong's shelf and asked to borrow it. Something about the book inspired Li, and he implored Hong to read it as well. The book was a collection of pamphlets called Good Words for Exhorting the Age by a man named Liang Fa. In the pages of Good Words, Hong found his truth. Now he understood. Seven years ago, he had visited his family in heaven, and he had been given a mission by his heavenly father to save God's children and rid the world of demons and imps. Hong had never really known what to make of this dream. Good Words opened his eyes. The heavenly father of his vision was Shangdi, the god he had read about in the Chinese classics throughout decades of study. Shangdi had been supplanted for the past 2,000 years in China, but he had been very active elsewhere. He sent down his son and Hong's older brother, Jesus Christ, to earth as a prophet to save God's children and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. It had been the followers of the true god, Shangdi, who had come to China's shores so recently and dealt the Qing a humiliating defeat. Hong read good words again and again, studying it with the same intensity with which he had long approached the Chinese classics. What did it all mean? What was God's will, and how should he follow it? I can't find an English translation of good words, so for the following section, I'm going to be relying on scholars who can read it in the original Chinese. All of them are in agreement that good words is an awkwardly written book. In their doctoral thesis on good words, Sukjo Kim writes that Hong likely, quote, struggled with awkward translations, disconnected narratives, and unintentionally ambiguous passages, end quote. Liang Fa had used the Morrison translation of the Bible when writing good words. It was the only translation available to him at the time, but it was not nearly as good as Carl's Gutzloff's translation, which wouldn't be completed until 1847. The heaven portrayed in good words was familiar to Hong. People, at least in a spiritual sense, traveled to and from heaven regularly. In heaven, God the Father ruled and maintained a large standing army. Liang Fa described how, when Jesus was born, an angel appeared to announce the birth of a savior. Then, a great celestial army came out of the clouds to declare, quote, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth Taiping great peace and goodwill toward men, 
End quote. When Jesus returned to heaven after his resurrection, Liang says that he was greeted, quote, by the countless numbers of his father's host, end quote. God was powerful and maintained a standing army to guard heaven and enforce his will. Why would God need such a force? Because, in Liang's portrayal, the world was full of evil demons and spirits, often worshipped as idols in everything from grand temples to roadside shrines all across the country. These malevolent creatures often invaded heaven and needed to be fought and destroyed. Goodwords spends quite a bit of time on Jesus' biography. The story began with God impregnating a virgin woman named Mary. Liang described Jesus as a studious boy, who only began his mission to teach at the age of 30, the same age as Hong was when he read this. Goodwords doesn't just discuss biblical passages. Liang included his personal biography and story of his conversion to Christianity. He also included a long critique of the Chinese exam system. Here's an abridged quote from Goodwords, quote, the practice of Confucian teaching often is full of vanity or absurdity. The scholars pay reverence to the idols of the gods of literature and implore their protection so that they will pass at the head of the examination lists. Most Chinese who study the Confucian texts feel they must pay obsequience to these two idols. They must beg these idols help in passing the exams. How is it possible that everyone who always worships these two idols and yet, there are many people who have been studying and taking the exam since childhood and reached the age of 70 or 80 without even passing the lowest level of exams. Haven't these men prayed to the idols every year? Why didn't these win the idols' protection and pass successfully? From this, we can see that these Confucian scholars are bewildered and obsessed by their ambitions, so they cling to their delusions and worship these idols instead of, with a humble mind, worshipping the ruler of heaven and earth." End quote. This critique resonated with Hong, and may even have made him feel a bit ashamed. It was true, the idols had only brought him failure and misery. The worship of the idols had deceived him and so many of his friends. It's not a coincidence that Hong and the first three converts were all struggling, wannabe Confucian scholars. All of them were literate and read good words. In addition to the gods of literature, Liang makes it clear that all the spirits, bodhisattvas, and patrons of Buddhism and Taoism, and any other religious tradition in China for the past 2,000 years, was evil and corrupt. It was the idols that led people away from the true god. The corruption is deep. Liang quotes Jesus from the book of Matthew, quote, The good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit? Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. End quote. Time and time again, good words emphasizes the belief that there is only one God and no others. It's probable that Liang put special emphasis on the importance of monotheism because it stood in such contrast to how he had grown up. In 19th century Chinese culture, it wasn't a problem to worship many gods or spirits. One might gravitate toward a temple to the Bodhisattva Guan Yin, while others might prefer Maitreya, a Taoist deity, or the temple of a hyperlocal god. There was also no problem visiting them all, depending on one's needs. We'll dive more into the details of the religious climate 
of the Qing Empire in a few episodes. At one point, Good Words quotes the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, where God complains that sacrifices to him are worthless. Quote, I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. End quote. Worship in Qing society often required many elaborate offerings, so this complaint would have made sense to Hong. Taiping worship rituals would never completely disregard offerings, but they were much less important than the rituals performed for other gods and spirits. Liang Fa criticized the Taoists for their focus on immortal life and, quote, exhausted the Chinese people's savings by exacting excessive fees for funeral rites and temple repair, end quote. He said Buddhists were obsessed with reaching the Pure Land, and monks, from Liang Fa's experience, just padded their own pockets and lived as parasites on the people. Another section of good words that caught Hong's eye was a discussion of the book of John, chapter 3. You may have seen Christians, especially evangelical, posting the phrase John 3.16 on a bumper sticker, at a sports game, or in a shop window. This verse of the Bible reads, quote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. End quote. This is a core tenet of belief for many Christians. God offers salvation to those who have faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. In the context of the rest of John 3, as well as other parts of Good Words, it was clear to Hong that Jesus had descended from heaven, that place where Shangdi lives with his army, and was risen up after his death and resurrection. This was all, of course, very familiar to Hong. He, too, had risen up to heaven to visit his heavenly family in 1837 after failing his exam, and descended back down again with a mission, bring the truth and teach the people to have faith, so that they, too, may ascend to heaven. Hong was also tasked to destroy the demons that deceived all God's children on earth. In the account of his visit to heaven, Hong also equates the time God descended to give Moses the Ten Commandments with the time Jesus descended, as well as Hong's own life on earth. You may be wondering what Hong thought of the fact that the Bible says that God sent his only son to save the people on earth. For Hong, that was simple. When Jesus descended to earth, he was God's only son. But in the nearly 1800 years that had passed, God had been busy, and the Heavenly Mother had given birth to several daughters, and then Hong Shiquan, the younger brother of Jesus Christ. The only son had become the eldest. The most complete account of Hong's ascent to heaven comes in a book called the Taiping Heavenly Chronicle, which was written around 1848, five years after Hong first read Good Words, and several years after he got his hands on a full Bible. Because of this timing, we have to consider the possibility that Hong invented or at least embellished the story of his visit to heaven in order to fit what he read in these other books and to put himself in a position of power and authority to give himself the position of savior within the new faith. We know that the Heavenly Chronicle was edited up until 1862, so it's not much of a question of if, but how much. Is it possible today to tell 
where there was a difference between an authentic religious experience and opportunistic invention? In the Taiping Heavenly Chronicle, Hong places the story of his journey in a broader historical and biographical context. It begins with a brief recounting of the events from the book of Genesis. God creates the world in seven days. Noah escapes God's wrath when the, quote, people were deluded by evil demons and the world practiced licentious ways, end quote. The Israelites flee Egypt, and Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Then God sends Christ, the heavenly elder brother, down from heaven to redeem the world. Hong, Jesus' younger brother, has descended to earth as a continuation of this story, which stretches back to the beginning of the world. The Heavenly Chronicle also recounts when Hong was reading good words and pondering its meaning that he recalled something his father had told him in heaven. Quote, when you descend into the world, there will be several years before you awaken, but you need have no fear about not awakening. Later, a book will be given to you which will explain to you all of these things. But when you act accordingly, most people will slander you, insult you, laugh at you, despise you. End quote. This is the kind of line that seems to be invented after the fact to address skeptics. While there were after-the-fact editions like this, I think it's much more likely than not that the core truth of Hong's experience in 1837 was genuine, and that good words was truly a key to understanding its meaning. The story of the visit to heaven itself shows very little influence from good words, the Bible, or Protestant Christianity in general. The heavenly elder brother is portrayed doing very unchristlike things, like raging at Hong when he struggles to learn a psalm to the point where Hong's sister-in-law had to smooth and calm the situation. God the Father is dressed as a Chinese sage. Key characters like Hong's heavenly mothers and sisters aren't in the Bible, and Confucius makes a prominent appearance. It's also missing characters like angels or the Holy Spirit, which might be expected if Hong was inventing the story to fit what he found in good words. But the main reason why I think that the core of the story is true is because Hong was able to tell his close friends and family about what he had learned in Good Words, about its connection to that time six years ago, when they had locked him in his room for a few weeks, in order to prevent him from hurting himself, or declare that he was the ordained son of heaven in front of a Qing official, a certain affront to the emperor that would have gotten Hong in serious trouble. Hong's earliest converts had all been around to witness what happened in 1837, or had heard about it directly from others. In later years, one of these early converts will recall what Hong said about the importance of his sickness and visit to heaven. Quote, if I had received the books without having gone through the sickness, I should not have dared believe in them. If I had merely been sick, but not received the books, I should have had no further evidence as to the truth of my visions. I have received the immediate command from God in his presence, the will of heaven rests in me. End quote. After reading and discussing Liang's book, Hong and Li decided to convert and accept Shangdi as the one and only true God. Since they didn't know any Christians, they took it upon themselves to reconstruct the baptism ritual as described in Good Words and took turns baptizing themselves. After they took a simple oath quote, not to worship idols, not to practice evil things but to keep the heavenly commandments, end quote. 
Hong wrote a poem to commemorate the event. When our transgressions truly inundate heaven, how well to trust in Jesus' full atonement. We follow not demons, but obey the sacred commandments. Worshiping one God alone, thus we cultivate our hearts. The heavenly glories men ought to admire, the miseries of hell I also deplore. Let us turn back early to the fruits of true repentance. Let not our hearts be led by worldly customs. End quote. In this poem, you can see some of the most important themes in Hong's early expression of his belief. Worshipping the one and only true God, the importance of the Ten Commandments, a role for Jesus, and a vague purification of the heart that's somehow opposed to contemporary earthly customs. With the zeal of converts, they embarked on a campaign of iconoclasm. They destroyed all idols in Li's house. Next, Hong removed the tablets in the school where he taught. Confucian tablets were required to be present in all schools in the empire. Their size and content were prescribed by the Qing court in Beijing. The central tablet was just over 28 inches tall, 4 inches wide, thin at the top, and thickening to 3 or 4 inches at the base. On this tablet, the words model teacher of myriad generations was inscribed in gold lettering. The exact content and specifications for these tablets had been promulgated by the Kangxi Emperor in 1688 and remained unchanged. Indeed, the calligraphy on the tablets was an exact copy of the calligraphy of the Kangxi Emperor himself. These were idols to both Confucius and imperial power. Smaller tablets surrounded the largest and were inscribed with names of famous and officially approved Confucian disciples and scholars from the last two millennia. Hong had spent decades learning and teaching before these tablets, but now he rejected them. The tablets were idolatrous representations of false gods or spirits. They were also symbols of the overarching authority of the Qing state and its bureaucratic system, to which he had aspired to join for all of his living memory. Soon, Hong returned to his home village and began converting friends and family. The two most consequential recruits at this time were Feng Yunshan and Hong Rengan. Feng was a distant cousin on his stepmother's side and a year younger than Hong Shiquan. Hong Rengan was a cousin on his father's side and just 21 years old. Like Shiquan, both men were students who aspired to join the Qing bureaucracy by passing up through the exam system. Both were failures, stuck in dead-end teaching jobs. These were just the kind of young men that Liang Fang had sought to convert, even though Liang himself had never attempted an exam. Though I focused on Liang Fa's writings because that's how Hong encountered him, Liang Fa also evangelized in person, at one point following the Qing prefect as he traveled Guangdong province administering the county-level exams. These were the same kinds of people who Edwin Stevens hoped to reach when he risked his life to hand out Liang's pamphlets outside of Guangzhou's exam hall. Years later, Hong Rengan wrote that after his conversion, he felt, quote, awakened as if from a dream or sleep, and could not help weeping. Thus, I removed at school all the images of Confucius and the gods of literature, and at home those of the gods of the kitchen, oxen, pigs, doors, and of the coming dragon, end quote. As we'll see in the next few episodes, 
Feng will become the most effective missionary for Hong's Christianity and almost single-handedly organize the first large group of converts, the Society of God Worshippers. Hong Rengan, by contrast, will play virtually no role in the 1840s, promoting what will become the Taiping faith. After being stuck in and around Guangzhou through the 1850s, as the Taiping conquered vast portions of the Qing Empire to the north of Guangdong province, Rengan was eventually able to travel north to become one of the most important Taiping leaders during the conflict's final apocalyptic years. Hong Rengan is also incredibly important to our understanding of the movement that grew into the Taiping. As the main source of information to the Swedish writer Theodore Hamburg and through his own confession in 1864, he is probably our most important witness to the events we'll be covering in the coming half dozen or so episodes. This is probably as good a time as any to quickly review our main sources for the events between Hong's conversion in 1843 and the beginning of major fighting in 1851. The surviving texts shape the contours of our understanding, highlighting some events while downplaying or completely forgetting others. First, we have the texts written and published by the Taiping that present the official story, such as the Taiping Heavenly Chronicle that we discussed earlier. One thing that's really cool about being able to study the Taiping is that we have copies of a ton of Hong Shi Quan's writings. And not just from the height of his power, but from the movement's earliest days. While the Qing tried to stamp out all traces of the Taiping after their defeat, they weren't able to do the kind of thorough job that we often see in history, such as the almost complete destruction of Aztec and Mayan books by the Spaniards. This is in part because a number of the texts we have survived in the custody of foreigners, like British or Americans. We're still missing a lot of what the Taiping published, not to mention less prominent writings like letters or other correspondence, but it's much more substantial than we get from so many other periods. Second, we have Hamburg's book called The Visions of Hongxi Quan and the Origins of the Guangxi Insurrection. Written in the immediate aftermath of the Taiping capture of Nanjing and the establishment of the Heavenly Kingdom, Hamburg relied very, very heavily on the testimony of Hong Rengan, who by then was in Hong Kong working with European and American Christian missionaries. Last, we have a number of miscellaneous texts like imperial reports and local news gazettes. Many, but by no means all of these have been translated into English. It provides a wealth of sources, but by no means are they complete or unimpeachable. Hong continued to convert his family, neighbors, and friends. Their household idols were smashed. From there, with the help of Feng and Hong Rengan, Hong Xiquan moved to try to gather converts in neighboring villages. Among Hong's first converts were also two cousins from Guangxi province who were visiting on business. According to Hong Rengan, early conversations among close followers were explicitly political. They talked of forming a new Chinese state, with its capital in Nanjing and a territory that would stretch along the length of the Yangtze, control both Shanghai and the Central Grand Canal, and incorporate all seven of the southern provinces, including Guangdong. This territory would much more closely reflect the borders of China under the Southern Song and the Ming dynasties than it did under the Qing, which included Manchuria, Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet. 
These lands of the north and west were mostly inhabited by those they perceived as foreign. Mongols, Muslims, Tibetans, and of course, Manchus. Hong Shiquan had no desire, in Rengan's telling, to rule over a large multi-ethnic empire. He wanted to create a Chinese theocracy that hewed much more closely to the borders of the classical state. It's hard to tell how much of this account is an accurate reflection of what Hong Shiquan was actually doing at the time instead of rewriting history with the benefit of hindsight. Since this telling was conveyed after the successful conquest of Nanjing, scholars of the Taiping debate not just when Han Quan and his followers began to entertain their grand political aspirations, but also how important or serious these considerations were. While there were anti-Qing sentiments in some of Hong's early writings, I don't think that there's good evidence of a premeditated political project during these early years. As we'll see later, the early Taiping military offensives appear to be much more um, improvised than pre-planned. I think Rangan's accounts of the early, detailed plan is mostly hindsight. The early anti-Qing sentiments among Hong and the god worshippers were much more of a reflection of general anti-Qing sentiments that erupted in the aftermath of the Opium War. While seeds of these ideas were present before the conflict in the ideologies of groups like the Heaven and Earth Society, the abject failure of the Qing state to protect Guangzhou from seaborne invaders created a fertile ground for those seeds to germinate and flourish. It seems to me that in the movement's early years, Hong Shiquan's anti-Manchu beliefs more or less tracked those general sentiments, and the movement was not driven by some detailed premeditated plan or political aspirations. The threat of violence, both to defend and promote the god-worshipper beliefs, were present from the very beginning. At one point in these early months, Hong and Li had a local blacksmith forge them a pair of double-edged swords, just like the one that God had given Hong in his journey to heaven. Each was nine pounds, three feet long, and had the words, Sword for Exterminating Demons, inscribed on it. These weren't for display. Hong, at least, carried his around regularly. Salvation and violent iconoclasm were wrapped up together from the very beginning. Of course, Hong wrote a poem celebrating his new sword. Grasping our three-foot swords, we bring order to the mountains and the valleys. All within the four seas will be one family, living in kindly union. Tigers roar and dragons call. Light fills the earth. Great will be our joy as the great peace reigns. After moving the tablets and other sacred objects they considered idols, parents began removing their children from their schools. Other scholars and local leaders attempted to convince Hong to be a little bit more understanding and to put the tablets back, but Hong refused. Without enough students, Hong departed Waterlily for his home village, jobless. But things weren't easy for him there either. Hostility between the new evangelists and their neighbors grew until it boiled over in early 1844. Community leaders, not understanding the severity of Hong's new beliefs, asked him and Rangan to inscribe lines to some local gods for the New Year's festival because the Hong cousins were the best calligraphers in the village. Of course, they refused. Angry poems followed posted around the village accusing the other side of sacrilege. 
In our culture, it's rare to find people dissing each other in verse unless you're in a rap beef. But in 19th century China, this is how serious business was done. Among them was a poem written by Shi Quan about his newfound faith in the Christian god Shangdi. Not because of slanders did we disobey the uncle's orders. We only honor God's commandments and act accordingly. Heaven and hell lie in strictly separate roads. How can we dare muddle vaguely through life? Shiquan was so incensed that he went to the village school and smashed the Confucian tablets into bits. The village leaders, of course, were furious at all this, as you can imagine, and fired Feng and Rangan from their teaching jobs. Rangan's older brother beat him so badly that his clothing was torn to pieces. It wasn't a great time for Hong to be out of a job. His wife, Lai, gave birth to their second daughter around this time, and they didn't have much savings. But their faith was only hardened by this conflict. So, Hong decided to, quote, travel throughout the world and teach all the people the doctrine of repentance. The plan was to pay their way by selling ink and brushes along the way, perhaps converting their old school supplies into ready cash. They drew inspiration and fortified their faith in a passage from Liang Fa's writings, quoting the book of Luke, No prophet is accepted in his own country. So, Hong Shiquan, Feng Yunchan, and two of Feng's relatives left the village of Guanlubu in early April 1844. Rengan tried to join them, but was forbidden from doing so by his parents and elder brother, the one who had beaten him so severely for the desecration of the Confucian tablets. The four started by walking south to Guangzhou along well-trodden roads. They spent some time in and around the city, in the rich farming lands of the delta to the south, presumably preaching as they marched. If they did have significant amounts of ink and brushes to sell, this wealthy and densely populated region would have been a good place to do so. But, not finding many, if any, converts, they headed back north. They finally found some success in a county about 40 miles north of Hong's home village, where they received a warm welcome from the clan of Li. It's not recorded whether these were relatives of Li Jingfang, Hong's first convert, but it seems quite likely. Hong baptized many people in the village, and they would remain faithful after his departure. Li may have even been there with his sword, but there's no record of it. In fact, after this point in the story, I lose track of the man who encouraged Hong to read good words, and I don't know what happened to him. Next, they meandered up a river valley further into the hills, presumably preaching to local residents as they marched. About a hundred miles north of Hong's home village, they came to a place called White Tiger Village. Here, the little group decided to split up. Feng's two relatives went back south to their home village, while Hong and Feng carried on. They headed about 250 miles to the west, into Guangxi province, to a town named Sigu. This was the home of Hong's distant cousins, the ones who had visited the year before on business, and whom he had converted to the new Christian faith. They arrived after two and a half weeks. The village of Sigu was home to five branches of the Huang and Hong clans, all of whom were Hakka, and related in some way to Hong Shiquan. Hong and Feng stayed with the Huang family, which included the five sons of Hong's cousin Huang Shengdun, closely related on his mother's side. Hong Shiquan and Feng 
preached among the local Hakka, and converted many others over the following months. The historian Jonathan Spence writes that conversion to Hong's Christianity began with the confession of sins. For those who could write, they put their sins down on paper, and then the paper was burned at an altar, reminiscent of a Taoist ritual. The converts then pledged, quote, not to worship evil spirits, not to practice evil things, and to keep the heavenly commandments, end quote. After confession and pledging good behavior, Hong poured water over their head to baptize them and spoke, quote, we wash away all your former sins, slough off the old and give birth to the new, end quote. Spence continues to describe the ritual as, quote, those who receive their baptism then bathe their bodies in the river, drink the tea that has been standing at the altar, and wash their chest around the area of the heart to signify that their inner and outer cleansing is complete. Henceforth, at every meal, they will offer up this simple prayer. We humbly give thanks to the Heavenly Father and Great God for His many blessings, for each day's clothing and food, for sparing us calamity and hardship, and helping our souls rise up to heaven. End quote. Faith in God to provide clothing and food may have been inspired by a line from the Sermon on the Mount, which Liang Fa included in his pamphlet. Quote, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who seek all these things, and indeed your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. End quote. I want to note here and going forward that I'm using a modern English translation of the Bible. Liang Fa used Morrison's translation of the Bible, which historian Jin Yuan says was, quote, often awkward and sometimes unintelligible. In this passage, I'm very curious how the word Gentile was translated by Morrison, because I don't think there's an equivalent concept in the Chinese languages, but I haven't been able to find out. While Hong was staying in Sigu, one of Huang Shengjun's sons got in trouble and was arrested by a local magistrate. Hong stepped in and wrote a petition to the magistrate asking for the young man's release. He also told his followers to pray to God for the young man's release. This effort was successful, and the magistrate released the prisoner. The Huang family was overjoyed and credited Hong's work and God for the good outcome. The young man became an especially fervent convert. Hong decided to leave Sigu and Guangxi province to head back home in November of 1844. He'd been gone seven months. Feng Yunshan had left a few weeks earlier to visit the Zhang family in the larger county seat of Guiping. The Zhang family were well off and held positions supervising the city's waterworks. So, Hong first went to Guiping, but couldn't find Feng anywhere. Zhang told him that Feng had already departed for home, so Hong followed. Instead of walking, however, Hong now had enough money to ride boats most of the way for a much faster and relaxing journey. Having only received a single letter from Hong during his absence, his family was surely happy to see him and relieved he was safe. Though Hong was back in Guanlubu, Feng was actually nowhere to be found. He hadn't returned to Guangdong, but had instead remained in Guangxi province. Next episode, we'll see how, over the next few years, Feng built the organization that would become the nucleus of Hong's Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, 
the Baishang Di Hui, also known as the Society of God Worshippers. While living and preaching in Sigu, Hong had begun to write a series of exhortations, starting with the exhortations to worship the one true God, to tell people what faith in one God really meant. At this point, it's most likely that the only Christian text that Hong had read was Liang's good words. He hadn't read the Bible yet, or, as far as we know, ever spoken in person to a Christian, beyond his brief conversation with Edwin Stevens in 1836. Hong's writings laid out the basic principles of behavior that God expected of his followers, a meld between Old Testament and New Testament, Christian morals, and Hong's own touch. This included a total of six commandments. First, don't follow the path of lust. Two, obey your parents. Three, don't murder. Four, don't steal. Five, don't practice witchcraft or the magical arts. Six, don't gamble, which is like drinking and smoking opium, which you also shouldn't do. Hong considered his commandments to be universal laws that applied to all of humanity, whether they knew it or not. He expounded upon these six points by drawing upon Chinese sources and illusions as much or more than he drew inspiration from good words, as he worked to put the new faith in a local cultural context. Hong's commandments would not have been wholly unfamiliar to his converts. Family lineages were incredibly strong in Guangxi province, and the heads of the families used their positions of power to enforce similar rules upon their lineage. For example, they often forbade lineage members from visiting prostitutes, gambling, or smoking opium. Hong was deeply schooled in the Confucian corpus. Many of these texts, if not literally written thousands of years ago, were ascribed to authors that lived before the birth of Christ, and spoke of events in mythology even older. Hong was acutely aware of this chronology, and from his first writings it's clear he believed that his ancestors had once worshipped this god, now called Christian. He wrote, quote, God the Father and Lord of all belongs to all people. The idea that the world is one dates from long ago, from the time of Panggu, through the first three dynasties. Rulers and subjects alike revered the Lord of Heaven." End quote. Hong's writings from this period were probably used to reach new converts and maintain some level of orthodoxy between the disparate communities of followers. Writings that could be printed and shared helped to reach two important groups in particular. First, those wannabe Qing bureaucrats, like Hong had been, highly educated and literate, but with few prospects for actually moving up the ladder and fulfilling their ambitions. Second, were Hakka in general. We talked a bit about the Hakka back in episode 1.6. Literacy among Hakka communities, at least the men, was much higher than the general population in China, up to 80%, although many were not as literate as the scholars like Hong and may only have been able to write and read a few hundred characters. This rivaled literacy rates in Protestant Europe at the time, although it was surpassed by what was probably the most literate group at the time, white Americans of both genders. The basic male literacy rate across all groups in China, by contrast, was in the neighborhood of 30%. And this is where we'll leave Hong, back in his home village, teaching at his old job. <laughs> yeah, he got his old job back. And writing tracts expounding on how one should follow God the Father. Next episode, we're going to go back to Guangxi province and see how Feng Yunchan 
navigated local eclectic gods, secret societies, and deep poverty and deprivation to build the Society of God Worshippers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews help others find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions, or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks. Thanks.